Hello, and welcome to Fanfare, a fortnightly flight of fancy in which we invite real-life cultural luminaries and their dream guests to dinner. I'm Monica, a fashion and culture journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, a writer, cookbook author, and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. Monica, would you consider yourself an arty person? Uh, well, I would definitely consider myself an arty party person, but I know deep down that that's not the same thing. Uh, No, indeed. Although there can be overlap. Exhibit A, the subject of today's episode, the late great art collector, memoirist, curator, and professional bohemian, Peggy Guggenheim. Ah, yes. And Peggy is being resurrected today by a modern-day tastemaker, the creative director, Alex Eagle. Tell me a bit more about Alex, Mon. So Alex Eagle is a London-based creative director, brand owner, hospitality entrepreneur, and designer. She's pretty well-known around town um, for her great taste in London, but also for her excellent hostessing and her unique approach to commerce, particularly where fashion and design are concerned. Her eponymous store, Alex Eagle Studio, presents a curated edit of fashion, accessories, art, furniture, and homeware, both online and in their elegant space in Soho, London. I remember when you took me there. Yeah. We had such a great time last time I was in London. Oh, it's a gorgeous store. Pretty fun, right? In 2017, Alex launched her own limited edition and bespoke women's wear lines, including a careful selection of jackets, trousers, and scarf neck shirts, which I am... Very fortunate to own a few. I love them. And um, dresses that have... Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to have to ask you to tell me what a scarf neck shirt is. So it's a, it's a shirt. It's a silk shirt with a built-in scarf. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's really chic because you don't get like caught up trying to figure out where your scarf begins and your shirt ends. Is the scarf the same color as the shirt, like a necktie yeah. type of thing? Or is it like a set? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love that. In this specific case, yes. And generally speaking. And some mm-hmm. there's sort mm-hmm. of a cream, off-white, navy blue, black, all lovely neutral colors. And do you tie it always or do you sometimes let it let loose? You could let it billow. billow in the wind. In fact, I have on occasion. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent. So these pieces have become staples in London's kind of like in the know fashion circles editors that whole crowd. Oh. And speaking of crowds, I speak from experience when I say that Alex is really great at bringing creative people together. Um, She curates the guests at a dinner party as well as any store or show space, which is why I was so curious to know after knowing her for a few years who she would pick as her dream dinner party guest because she herself is a bit of a dinner party master. Uh Uh-huh. But then... As soon as she identified Peggy as her guest, I I thought, aha, it makes all the sense. Well, yes, this description is kind of ringing a bell. Yeah, yes. It's ringing a few bells. Well, so let's talk a bit more about Peggy Guggenheim to give people a bit of background in case they're not familiar with her before Alex gets here. Does that, is that a good idea? I love that idea. Tell me, tell me, hit me. Okay, so... Marguerite Peggy Guggenheim was an American art collector, gallerist, bohemian, and socialite. A self-described art addict, Peggy sought to distinguish herself from her famously business-oriented, wealthy, and by several accounts, sort of uptight family. 
Right. Because her, her father died when the Titanic sunk and she was 13. He was on the Titanic with his mistress and he put his mistress on a lifeboat and died. Yes, quite nobly and said, I will, I'm dressed like a gentleman and I'll go down like a gentleman. Or according to a cut scene from the Titanic, that's what happened. Very sad. Right. And 13-year-old Peggy, who adored her father and had a somewhat more complicated relationship with her mother... Um, I think she said in the documentary something like someone, the, the interviewer asked her, was your mother a good mother? And she said, there were no good mothers in those days, Yeah, <laughs> which is a somewhat ominous statement. Mm. Um, so she, from the age of 13 onward, um, had a complicated emotional life, perhaps before too, but we know she suffered what she called a nervous breakdown at 13 and uh, had a kind of turbulent adolescence but found herself, in a way, working in a bookstore in Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. Got to know a new way of kind of interacting with the world by hanging out with writers and artists and intellectuals, and then moved to Paris as a young woman. Yeah, wait, and and just on the bookstore, I, I read this amazing detail where she was sort of, I think she was sort of the assistant. Like, she was not the head honcho uh, to any extent. Oh, no. And oh, she, no. She was shelving. She would be sweeping the floors in um, pearls and extravagant jewelry and fur coats, which I just loved. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, it's pretty incredible. The life that she's led. So she she moved to Paris when she was around 20. Uh, is that right, Mon, or just before? Uh, yeah. Uh, and it was it was the twenties in Paris, uh, and she fairly quickly became entrenched in the cafe scene. Uh, has known Mar- uh, Marcel Duchamp since nineteen twenty one. They became very very close friends, and remained friends. Good old Marcel. Uh, good old Marcel. He keeps turning up. Yeah, he does. He was really got around. Marcel Duchamp is definitely. Um, yeah, just this enigmatic figure who shows up in so many different places. Uh, and in the case of Peggy Guggenheim, he was a bit like a Virgil to the Paris art scene. He introduced her to all the all the artists of the moment, uh, including writers. And he, as she put it, really counseled her on, you know, surrealism, um, modern art, what to buy, who to listen to. You know, she she often posed anyway as a bit of a naive. Whether she was or not, we'll see. Um, Perhaps we can make our own judgments on that. But she liked to act as if she were being guided by various people. And certainly Marcel Duchamp was somebody she um, referred to as one of those guides. Yeah, she she did. She often men as well. And and there's been some debate um, as to whether she was sort of a product of her time and, you know, had been taught that women couldn't um, make decisions for themselves. But then at the same time, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a bit of guidance from a Marcel Duchamp. And arguably, it really helped her career that she was so open to people's um, advice. Well, that's just, she had such solid instincts about whom whom to listen to, right? Right, exactly. Um, she wasn't listening to absolutely everybody. Right, precisely. Unfortunately, those same instincts did not lead her in the best of directions when it came to affairs of the heart, as we'll yes, get to. Yes, exactly. And we will get to that. But let's just um, let's just move on to her London days. Because um, so in the late 30s, fleeing the Nazi occupation uh, on the continent, um, she moved to London and she opened her first gallery at Guggenheim Jeune. 
Around this time, her friend and sometime lover Samuel Beckett told her that, quote, one should be interested in the art of one's time, which became one of her mottos and and actually ultimately lent itself to the name of her second gallery, Art of This Century in New York. So again, taking advice from the best. <laughs> taking advice from the best. The affair with Beckett. So she had affairs with many great artists um, and some not so great and a lot of very bad people, it sounds like. But she you know, was famously, um, shall we say, interested in pursuing Eros and you know, not interested in the conventions that would have called that inappropriate or unladylike or, you know, she was, she spoke her mind and she acted her urges and, you know, let, let the chips fall as they may. Yeah. But the affair with Beckett is interesting because apparently they met, he was 10 years her junior, you know, these intense kind of wild green eyes and tall and slim and just this like super, it sounds like very attractive kind of force. Um, and she recognized kind of genius in him right away, apparently. And they had this energy together and spent, as she said, I believe, 12 days straight in bed. Um, and she had to pull herself away to go to her London gallery opening. And it was one of the only times I think that or at least one of the first times that her career superseded her career as a curator and gallerist and, you know, maker of art uh, connections and artists' careers and, you know, a mover and shaker superseded her love interests um, because then Beckett went off and fell for someone else. And, you know, she kind of never ended up marrying Beckett, which she did end up marrying quite a few of the others. So uh, right. it's a notable exception. Definitely, definitely. And I think she loved him a lot. Yeah. Tell me more about Mon. What, what became of the London Gallery? She, it, it wasn't open very long because she said she never actually sold anything. But it was, you know, the spot um, to, to, to come see these, you know, Brancusi and uh, all of these amazing um, artists of, of, of her time who she was championing. But she also, you know, another really important thing to remember about Peggy Guggenheim um, is she wasn't just showing art. She actually like kind of saved a lot of art from the Nazi occupation. So when everyone was getting the hell out of Paris, um, she... Um, amassed one of the most prominent collections of Cubist and Surrealist works at a time when, like, people didn't necessarily recognize these movements with any kind of regard. Not only that, they were specifically targeted by the Nazis. So not only yeah. was she Jewish and therefore an extreme personal danger, but she was also collecting modern art, which was considered extremely dangerous by the Nazi regime. They thought that these, you know, if there was a quote actually from Hitler in the catalog of her New York gallery when it opened um, amid a few other quotes. And the quote from Adolf Hitler was to the effect of, you know, these artists are deranged if they see the sky as being, you know, purple and the the sea as being green or whatever, they should be rounded up. You know, it was like just believing that modern art represented mental illness and mental illness should be handled with, you know, the most terrifying methods, as we know, um, that was part of what Hitler's regime uh, was seeking to target. And so she was 
in extreme danger. So, uh, no, truly, she really risked her life. Absolutely. And she stayed at Paris. And at one point, she was uh, apparently acquiring, well, according to her, acquiring a painting a day. And this frenzied um, trip. She had she had a budget of $40,000. The money that she had set aside to start, um, I love this so much, that she had set aside $40,000 to start a museum in London. Um, because her gallery wasn't working and she had planned before the outbreak of war to instead open a museum. But she realized that London was likely going to be bombed and that it wasn't a good time to open a museum in London. So instead, she took the $40,000 that she was going to spend on that museum and used it to buy, yes, exactly, as you say, Monica, a painting a day um, until it was absolutely time for her to leave Paris. And she did that. I believe it was 125 paintings. Yeah, a group that included works by Brancusi, Dali, Brack, Ernst, and Picasso, just to name a few. I mean, today that just seems extraordinary. 40 grand. And Kandinsky and yeah, no, it's just mind boggling. And she actually described that time in Paris as a very peaceful time. She was living in a friend's apartment on Ile Saint-Louis and she liked lying in bed in the morning and watching the light change on the Seine. And she apparently held dinner parties for which she cooked herself, allegedly. I can't find any record of what she cooked, unfortunately. And she had decided on, you know, austere, personal austerity at this time, right? She wasn't buying as many clothes. She wasn't living in as flamboyant a way. Um, she was spending her resources to save this artwork and, and to ultimately bring it safely to America. And to, largely, she introduced um, or was hugely responsible for introducing this European movement of modern art to the United States. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have a lot to thank her for. And that's part of the reason it's important not to um, view uh, Peggy through any single lens because, yeah, she had a lot of lovers and she, you know, was born into a great deal of privilege, but she really made something interesting of, of her privilege. Anyway, let's talk more about all of this with Alex because I and 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 I feel like I might hear her coming. Is that is Alex at the door? Ooh, there she is. Let's let her in. Alex, welcome. It's so good to see you. Thank you, Monica. It's so nice to be here. Hi. Hi, Emma. Hi. We're so happy you're here. Please, could you tell us a bit about yourself to begin with and your work as a creative director in your current projects? Of course I can. So my name's Alex Eagle. I'm based in Soho in London. And I spend my time between to do a few different projects. One of them is the Alex Eagle Studio, which is just down the road from where I am now, which is where we design, make, and sell kind of clothes. Um, we sell kind of furniture, antiques, art, a mixture of stuff um, in that shop. And then I spend the rest of my time at the Alex Eagle Sporting Club, which is currently at 180 The Strand, which if you haven't been to, you must come and visit. What happens at the Sporting Club? So the Sporting Club is a kind of, it's it kind of came out of, you know, the, doing everything via, you know, virtually during lockdown. I just wanted to create a space where people could really be and hang out and actually was a physical space with light and space and food and a place to meet and hang out. And with that in mind, I kind of wanted to create a place where you could do stuff just for the pleasure of it, just for the joy of it. So the antithesis of like a gym or like a kind of place just where you do kind of sweaty type sports a kind of place where you can kind of 
I don't know, take up fencing or jujitsu, Pilates, ballet, stuff like that. Stuff that's for the fun of it, like taking up a new language or a hobby rather than just in terms of like burning calories, if that makes sense. I have to ask, I've been wondering, do you personally do fencing or jujitsu? Yeah, I do do fencing. I mean, at the moment, I'm very heavily pregnant, so I'm not looking my best in the little white outfit. <laughs> but yeah, but in the meantime, my my dad and my son, Jack, avid, you know, they live for it. So it's oh very sweet gosh. to see. I want to fence with you one day. I took up fencing while I was doing my master's in Paris, uh, and it is the best exercise and also a very good oh gosh, way to I get your silly I completely forgot that you did that. Oh, I am Emma, actually quite good o- at it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Can we put you on the um, sporting club team then, please? Can we enroll you? I would love to try out for the team. We'll make you a chic little white outfit. outfit. Yes. <laughs> what did, do you say on guard and stuff when you... Yeah, oh. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You sold, Monica. I'm sold. I'm sold. But today we're going to say far. avant-garde <laughs> because we're talking. Yes, we are. Oh, dear. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Okay, so yeah, let's keep ourselves on track here. Alex, how did you first discover Peggy Guggenheim? Do you have a specific memory about what piqued your interest? I mean, I think I think it was probably in Venice for the first time when I was visiting her museum, her collection, um, and it had been her home. And I just remember she just assembled the most amazing collection of artists, so, all of which, or most of which I feel like I knew, and I felt like they were the kind of the artists that really spoke to me. And I just, just had this incredible sensation seeing it in this kind of broken down way where it didn't feel like a museum, it didn't feel like a white cube, it didn't feel cold or sterile. You could imagine having lived with all those pieces of art around you and it was super inspiring. Um, So I might have heard her name before that. I'm sure I did. You know, there's so many books and documentaries and stuff about her. But I think it was going to see her actual museum in Venice that it had the kind of super impact on me. Amazing. Well, certainly your stores, uh, from what I've seen, feel more like well-curated galleries. Can you tell us a bit more about what you've learned from Peggy in terms of the art of curation, presentation, and crucially, atmosphere in a concept shop or a gallery? Yeah, I mean, I think Peggy truly lived with her work. She, she, she really lived with the artists that she, that she, you know, she was immersed in the world and the lifestyle. And lots of the things were things she'd bought or, or, you know, the artists became friends or lovers or in in Max Ernst's um, case, her husband. But she really kind of lived with them, dangling off her ears in colder sculptures mm-hmm. and bedheads and, you know, tapestries or murals that she, you know, Jackson Pollock made her a huge, vast, like, mural, one of the first works he ever made, actually. But she lived with it, you know, she really loved it and really lived with it. And I think that's um, what I try and inspire clients to do when they see the works in our space is to understand how that kind of like tailor-made to a Savile Row degree, you know, um, piece of tailoring can really live in your wardrobe next to a t-shirt, next to a baseball cap, you know. Same with art, like not to see it exhibited in a kind of 
scary, sterile way, like some museums can be, or galleries even, sorry, can be super intimidating. So we try, we have candles burning and records playing and we, we hodgepodge it with ceramics that are 100 quid with 10,000 pounds, you know, to show that that's how you can live with things and not to be intimidated by it, you know. And I think that's what definitely Peggy did. She lived with these works. She immersed herself with living with the artists and definitely really like nothing was too precious or special. You know, she had that amazing um, museum that she did in, in New York before she moved to Venice. You could actually touch the work. She actually installed them in a way that like were, it was like how now we have immersive art and art installations going on, which is kind of groundbreaking and seen as super modern. She was doing that, you know, she put the, she put the um, pictures almost at, your height you know so you could almost reach out touch it spin them around look at them i think this kind of tactility this kind of like being close to the works is also breaks it down from feeling intimidating and that maybe inspires you that you can live with things in your home Mm, I love that. That makes me think of a story in the Francine Prose wrote uh, Peggy Guggenheim, The Shock of the Modern, and I've been listening to it on Monica's recommendation. It's great. We'll link to it in the show notes. But she mentions a moment when a high school art teacher came to the New York Gallery and asked if he could show his class 10 Kandinsky paintings. And Peggy said, that's a great idea. She was so excited. The idea of, you know, exposing students to modern art was very much what she was, you know, in line with what she was aiming to do. And so with Kandinsky's permission, the teacher strapped the works to the roof of his car and drove them to the school, showed them to the kids and brought them back, which I just love. We look at the footage of the way that things were kind of um, left Paris as well, like during the war as well. It's amazing how people got things out of the country, you know, Um, some of those those artworks really have a story to tell, don't they? Absolutely. And the Louvre refused to be involved. She actually asked yes. for help. We were just talking about this before you arrived, the way that she saved so much now, now priceless artwork from the Nazi occupation. And she, yeah, they refused to help. It's big time. That's It's definitely that scene in Pretty Woman when she goes back. <laughs> yeah. Big mistake. Big huge, time. huge mistake. I know. Thank God for Peggy. I mean, that's why she is one of the reasons she's a massive hero. I mean... She really took a chance on a lot of these artists, you know, they weren't, they weren't, they're now household names, they're now iconic, but they weren't all then. And she really risked life and limb to um, protect them, to save them. Said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Okay, so I just want to take a step back because, like, how did she know? Okay, so Alex, you know, you ha- you're known for your great taste. How <laughs> do you just feel that something is going to be great? Is it an instinct you're born with? Can it be cultivated? And be honest, you can just be like, yes, you're born with it. It's nature. No, <laughs> I actually... There's that amazing Dan Vreeland quote that's a little bit of bad taste is like a nice splash of paprika. We all need a splash of bad taste. It's hearty, healthy, physical. I think that always brings to mind whenever, because it's such a compliment whenever anyone says I have good taste. And obviously I'm so grateful for that. But I think it's so objective. And actually Peggy, in my mind, has the most extraordinary taste that she assembled the most amazing collection. But she wasn't known, actually, as a woman of great taste, you know. Um, 
at all. So I think maybe taste is subjective and it's also in retrospect. And so I think, you know, when I put Sotsas in my studio eight years ago, it was bad taste. And now it's become some, something so seen as good taste as so many influencers or <laughs> highbrow people with it. So yeah. I think it's very... Wait, what, what was it? Like a Sotsas, like an ultra fragola mirror. They're kind of very kitsch. And you've definitely seen this, Emma, on Instagram. It's like um, I'm Googling. people are obsessed with taking selfies in these. It's like a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mirror. Okay, we'll link to it in the show notes so you can picture it. Uh, Peggy (laughs) definitely started that trend for sure. Peggy would love this. Peggy would love, but I think that's the thing is that, you know, like what Diane Vreeland said, it's, you know, bad taste is, is fantastic. What are we without a bit of bad taste? So while it's a compliment, and I think it's what we associate Peggy with, I think actually something interesting and, sta- and that will stand out and make anyone remembered or anyone's home or space feel interesting is actually bad taste. But you can't go around telling everyone they've got bad taste. But um, a little bit of bad taste is vital. But that didn't answer your question at all. No, Sorry, I liked but... that, though. I liked where you went with that. And um, and it'll definitely make us, you know, all of us who sort of live in this between online and real life world of sort of taste making, you know, in my in my other hat uh, uh, in fashion, it, it really speaks to some of the trailblazers, I guess, that we see. And you think, what uh, what the hell are you wearing? And actually, it turns out to be... And Monica, do you know what? I think that's a perfect example. I think that's the thing with all of these, with buying a collection, be it 100 quid ceramic or dressing yourself. It is following your gut. If you love it, it all works together. And I think that's advice for doing up your home, for building any kind of collection, for just putting anything together, you know, um, visually. It's like, if you really love it, it doesn't matter if it works together or not because if someone's got a vision for something it always works if you are trying to just cultivate something based on what you think others will like or what's trendy or what is let's say good taste it's it's it doesn't work so well so it's just following your gut and what you love yeah it just looks like a copy yeah exactly well it's interesting that you should have mentioned the um the mural by Pollock that she lived with, because, you know, as an example of her not bending to other people's, she took advice and she knew from whom to take advice, but she did not bend to other people's uh, idea of what was good or bad, you know, on a whim. Like she was very careful about who she, you know, who she listened to when. And when she was living with the uh, Scottish writer, Kenneth McPherson, uh, I was just listening to the bit in the Francine prose where she talks about how he hated that mural. And, you know, she just sort of said, well, bad luck for him because he has to see it every single day. (laughs) And, you know, she loved living with it. And she had that like coup de foudre for it, um, even though it wasn't considered art at the time. And later with a bit more recul, she thought about um, that as one of her biggest achievements, you know, putting Pollock on the map as an artist was one of her biggest discoveries as she later said um but at the time it was not at all a given and and certainly you know some of the things that she wore were not to everyone's taste like wearing saran wrap and you know uh, plastic <laughs> you know chaparelli outfits was definitely not everybody's idea of high fashion at the time yeah i'm going to get to that because i think that one of us should definitely be wearing um a chaparelli <laughs> I think it should be you, Monica. Let's be honest. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's the only person um, who isn't pregnant who has to be the bearer of the cellophane. Emma. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. 
<laughs> but we'll we'll get there. We'll get there okay. in a sec. I have some other ideas. I'm going to tactfully change the subject. Okay. <laughs> Peggy's granddaughter, the curator Carol Vale, um, has said that her life and art, that Peggy's life and art were completely intertwined. And we've been talking about this. Does surrounding yourself, Alex, with creative people help one to develop a more profound understanding of art, in your opinion? I am friends with lots of the artists whose work I display and it brings me a lot of joy knowing them and I feel super proud to know them and I feel like I can explain to people their work more because I know it from the point of view of the artist. Also find sometimes artists aren't the best people at selling or explaining their own work because to them it is just a feeling inside them that just needs to come out and because I can kind of feel it if I love something then I'm maybe in a better position to to explain it or sell it than they are and I think artists should be protected from having to sell their own wares because it's difficult you know it's so personal so it's a great pleasure for me to be able to explain the works that I love and why I love them and I just definitely am drawn to things that spark this true like human emotion that aren't figurative that are abstract and that I think harks back to, you know, all the things that Peggy was doing as well. You know, there, a lot of the works were, you know, cubism and abstract and minimalism. You know, they were, why do they, now we take it for granted that we're allowed for them to make so much sense to us emotionally or to spark whatever it is that they do in us. But at the time, it wouldn't have been an obvious thing. So she definitely had a second sense for that. And that's what we try and do with the artists we work with, I guess, is like, you have to love it. You know, it's very hard to exhibit something and really believe in it if you don't, it doesn't spark some kind of emotion in you. Yeah. So you're almost like a translator in your role of, of emotion, emotion in a way. Maybe. <laughs> I, I know. I like that idea. Um, okay. So in Peggy's, let's just talk about Peggy's very specific case here. Because sometimes her lifestyle, it seems, also affected her negatively. Uh, I mean, starting with she was expected often to support everyone around her financially, but she also ran into some really mad and frankly, um, both emotionally and physically abusive boyfriends, lovers, husbands. Should she have protected herself, known better? How do you read this whole... I think the more you learn about Peggy, the more you realize she's so human. You know, she was deeply insecure. She she, she had a kind of strange upbringing and childhood and, um, and was deeply insecure. And because of that, probably made some really mad decisions. But, you know, Lawrence, her first husband, was abusive while they were married. But then they became best friends, in her words, after they got divorced and they had two children. So she's not going to change that for the world. Um, Max Ernst, she says this heartbreaking thing about being sandwiched between he, his two great loves and she was just there unloved in the oh, middle, know. you know, but she, she had a lot of fun, you know, she, she was unapologetic. It was, she did kind of also sit in this kind of moment where she was so honest and so open and, and, you know, pre-war everything was so wild and free and then, I don't know she she was kind of unapologetic she did make bad decisions but she really lived her life and I think it was quite 
I think it was quite a kind of wild time that she lived in. You know, it was quite drink and drug fueled. It was quite kind of like she was mixing with all of these incredible artists as well. You can imagine. I mean, it wasn't conventional by any means. And it's and she also so she viewed herself not only as a collector but also as a writer. And originally, her memoir was published in 1946. She later added to it, I believe, and re-released another edition. But you know, she told the story of her own abuse. And she told the story of the domestic abuse at the hands of, you know, Lawrence Vale and she and and other husbands and boyfriends um, in her own way. So, you know, it wasn't something that she was seeking to hide in any way. No, she wasn't. And she speaks so openly about having abortions and all of these things. You know, she was super open, which is why I think we want to have dinner with her, right? Because she's so... She's so, you know, she's so open. She's not really hiding behind anything. She might be insecure, but she kind of wears it quite well by being so open to talk about things, you know? She's almost this very sort of early model for a liberated woman, which obviously came with so many challenges at the time. Um, And... But uh, yeah, I think in terms of that, well, honesty, she was free because she was financially yeah. more independent than most women could be, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So she had a freedom that she took total advantage of. I think, um, in a in a positive way. I think with her name and with that inheritance, also came the weight of everyone expecting her to pay or expecting mm-hmm. it to be on her. Mm-hmm. And you know, she was obviously by no means the richest Guggenheim and no. this was maybe the problem you know then that you know she she was by no means poor at all but but she compared to the rest of the Guggenheims that name people expected so much of her and she actually assembled her collection I mean I think that it was like the the main bulk of what you can see at the museum in Venice she bought for 40,000 pounds which obviously was a lot more then but I can tell you it's a nothing compared to what its value would be now you know yeah. insane it's wild. she was very careful and very clever with money you know she 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 used it very well you know she wasn't splashing it about but i think she was expected to to pay for things and i think she really helped pollock as well i think you know she kind of she put him up in a house and paid for his materials and stuff like that so she really you know she really helped him for example build his career you know Mm, absolutely. I'm just reading about in today's terms how much money she inherited. So when she turned 21 in 1919, she inherited $450,000, which is the equivalent of about $6.4 million today. So certainly she was wealthy, but, you know, we, as we've seen in this age of billionaires and super yachts and what have you, she was certainly not, you know, that would not have been in the same league as Solomon Guggenheim, her uncle, for example, or her cousins in New York. Um, and it's true that with a name like Guggenheim, people would have just assumed endless pockets and certainly she was very often expected to pay for absolutely everybody Um, and in part because of this perhaps I don't know and also one of the things that I found most disturbing in reading about her was the amount of ridicule that was thrown her way Um, a lot of it sexist a lot of it to do with the fact that you know she wasn't quote-unquote beautiful which I disagree with I actually think she was extremely beautiful those pictures of her by Man Ray oh my gosh that's gorgeous that portrait and obviously had something very compelling about her or she wouldn't have been able to sleep with all these (laughs) everyone she met seemed to to be yes no you're right you're right but it seems as if some of them almost like turned on her afterwards because they were you know perhaps stressed out by the fact that 
she was often bankrolling their lives and maybe felt well, you know, she had a control that they weren't used to. Yeah, she she was a woman who was in control in a way that was undeniable. And, and I think she not, was maybe an easy target. Unusual. Yeah, because she did. You know, she talked about her inferiority complex very vocally. It was it was new to talk about kind of Freudian terms like that. And she, I think, she was willing to debase herself to an extent as part of her persona. You know, she, as I mentioned earlier, she kind of played this ingenue. Whether she was that character or not is very much debatable. But she liked to kind of act as if she were this naive woman. And anyway, people took real advantage of that and ridiculed her. And she ended up putting up with an enormous amount of abuse. I mean, the, the Max Ernst stories are unbelievably disturbing. Um, you know, she married him, brought him to the States, rescued him from Nazi occupation. And he thanked her by being in love with someone else. And, you know, he threw a party to celebrate his uh, when they came after him and he ended up having to face like a, a trial in the U.S. She, there was a party to celebrate his victory, which she had orchestrated. And he then threw that party and left her behind with his son, like forgot to even let her into the taxi, you know, just cruel, like daily things showing her. And then later in his artwork painted his mistress as a beauty and her as an ogre repeatedly. Um, and just, you know, she was, and then to her face, people said horrible things, some of it not only sexist, but ragingly anti-Semitic. And she, one of the most inspiring things about her, I think, is that she just refused to let sticks and, you know, it was sticks and stones all the way. Like she didn't let those words, at least not, she didn't appear to let those words get to her. She just carried on doing what she needed to do and what she wanted to do. And she was in a position to do what she loved, you know, collect art. I mean, when she handled and talked about the the works that she she'd amassed and assembled she was in you know she it brought her so much genuine joy getting to know and befriend the artists who pretty much always became her friends you know that's it doesn't really matter what all these people did to her because she had her passion she had what she loved you know I'm sure it imprinted her and how she felt about herself but she still had something bigger than all of that it seems because she did so much with it you know she kept on going she kept on collecting and it was you know we're so lucky that she did because her collection is just extraordinary fanfare is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite shopping destinations matches fashion discover the new season at matchesfashion.com the Matches Fashion app, one of the most addictive apps on my phone, I don't know about you, or in person at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in Mayfair, London. Connecting the physical and digital, 5 Carlos Place aims to create a community among customers. Discover their curation of new designers and collaborations on the retail floors. Shop their full online edit via iPad and try on within 90 minutes and interact with QR codes via your smartphone to discover content that brings the house to life. With luxury shopping suites, you can also schedule completely bespoke appointments with space to select your favorite pieces with the help of the Matches Fashion private shopping team. And as the permanent residency of their event series, Five Carlos Place plays host to cocktails, dinners, workshops, and much more. Find out what's on at matchesfashion.com. Bon appétit. 
Now, guys, I want to uh, I want to start talking about our dinner because I'm worried that Peggy's going to get here and we're not going to be ready. So, Alex, you've been, you know, you you I really think you give some of the best dinner parties um in your in your loft in London when always meets new inspiring people. The Plasmal and vibes are great. So, I was going to take the liberty of asking you if you felt like we could host Peggy at your place. Yeah, I mean, unless she's into Harry's bar and we could go and have a Bellini in Venice, which would be really nice as well. That'd be but fun of course too. we can have her at mine. I'd love that. I'd love that. I mean, um, I mean, I amazing. think it could be really fun. And, you know, she could she could come straight from the gallery. I think she'd like to see your collections, too. Mm. OK, um, Emma, what are we going to serve her? Have you got something in mind? I sure have. In my reading about Peggy, food came up in a few disturbing ways. Um, first of all, in The Abuse by Lawrence Vale that Peggy writes about in her memoir, which I will not detail here, but there are some food-related uh, moments that are very disturbing. And also in her so-called friends' reports of her abstemiousness, which, as you said, Monica, is ironic, given that she supported many of them. One complained that she served inexpensive red wine at her openings, Crimea River, and another that she served cheap whiskey and potato chips at her parties, for goodness sake. Well, sakes. whoever complained Sounds about fun. that, it sounds like they probably deserved to drink cheap wine. I know. <laughs> I think I it know. sounds quite... It sounds quite fun anyway, potato chips. Yeah, sounds I right. think so too. Let's have I that. mean, seriously, get your, bring, why don't you as the guest bring a nice bottle of whiskey for her? Goodness. So we think that she deserves to be wined and dined lavishly, um, though perhaps we will pour less liberally than John Holmes did. Um, her great love in between two husbands uh, who whom she lived with in Dorset. They had a home together called Hayford Hall, which was apparently nicknamed Hangover Hall by their friends. She had a very close female friend called Emily Coleman, who usefully kept extremely rigorous diaries. So we have an account of what dinners were like at Hangover Hall, thanks to Emily Coleman. Oh, tell us more. Yeah, so apparently there was an excellent cook who served up liver, crisp bacon, and peas. They played music continuously, Mozart, Beethoven, and Elizabethan composers. Evenings were filled with talk about writers, ranging from Blake to Zeno, Coleridge to uh, Santayana, Tolstoy to O'Neill. At night, they played a continuous game of truth in which they said exactly what they thought of one another. Oh one night, so <laughs> mental. <laughs> so mental. Yeah. Truth or dare minus the dare, essentially. Um, one night, Emily read aloud from an old diary and the group howled with laughter. They doubled up and shrieked. Um, Rabelaisian nights turned into absurd antics or impassioned fights. So we won't try to recreate all of that because, yeah. you know, for obvious reasons. Instead, what I propose is a culinary tribute to her final adopted homeland of Venice. Okay. So to your to your point, Alex, about Bellinis, I was thinking for cocktails, Venetian spritzes. So of course we can Delicious. use either Aperol or Campari, or there will also be Bellinis on offer. Um, depending on how bitter one is feeling, one can choose one's spritz of choice. I'm hoping we'll be in a sweet mood to start the night off though, and perhaps go with some Aperol spritzes. And as a snack to go with those cocktails, I was picturing Venetian frito misto. So fried seafood with wedges of lemon. What do you guys think of that? Delicious. I'm down. Okay, Perfect. good, good, good. And then uh, for the first course, I was initially picturing something like risotto al nero di sepia, which is a Venetian classic, squid ink risotto. But then I realized that I don't want to be stirring all night, you know. Um, 
there will surely be stirring things happening inside your living room, Alex. So instead, continuing with the fried theme, I was thinking maybe arancini, fried risotto bowls, which can be made ahead and then just fried up at the last moment to serve. Does that suit? Yeah, I'm more into squidding, but I get it with the stirring. Oh, well, we could do squidding arancini. Yeah, if you want the double fried, Emma. I mean... <laughs> or we get it catered. Or do you know what? I was texting a friend. It's perfect finger food to just keep on having the the bellinis and the spritz. So maybe no one has to sit down. They can just, maybe no one has true. to sit down. I was texting a friend who did the um, Peggy Guggenheim Fellowship, and so did her daughter, my friend Sarah McLaughlin. And she's just been answering me. This is live coming in from Sarah. She recommends <laughs> getting Rosa Salva in Venice to cater because she says Peggy would have catered. <laughs> So, you know, perhaps I save myself the stirring and just get them to make the risotto for us. And she also really thought, I was thinking we should have pesce in saor, as, or pesce in saor, fish, marinated fish with, with caramelized onions and raisins and pine nuts, a Venetian specialty, as our main course. But she thinks we should have vitello tonato, veal with tuna and oh, sauce. Do you like vitello tonato? Okay. I vote for that. Okay, yeah. okay. So we'll get it catered, I think. And then I can just, you know be one of the revelers this time. Well, you need to be having the spritzes and, you know, I mean, well, I can't, well, here's another question, okay. Um, are we having anyone else to this dinner party or is it just um, us? So, so that we can ask her a maximum number of questions. Peggy would probably have quite a lot of shits used to bring. She would have had her entourage. <laughs> right? She had her furry entourage and her kind of, well, other fairy entourage, all the artists. Right. So it depends. I mean, with her comes an amazing list of buddies, right? So we wouldn't want her not to bring Calder, Bacon, Dali, Duchamp, Miro, if we had the chance. But, I mean, her dogs would do otherwise, no? And then just stock her up on on cocktails and bellinis and get to hear all the fabulous gossip that she has. Yeah, selfishly, that sounds really good. I just want to sit her should down. Yeah, have her to ourselves. Yeah. I think we should. I mean, I was very tempted by Mary McCarthy, the novelist, because I love that they became good friends. But I, I also agree that there are merits to having just Peggy. But what about Marcel Duchamp? We're obsessed with Marcel Duchamp on this podcast because he keeps popping up all over the place. Well, I think that's what's so interesting is I think he did pop up. I think he had such a huge impact on that moment. And thereafter, you know, I think the more you learn about him, the more you realize it's not just the famous urinal that we all no. think of from our childhood, but it's the impact he had as a curator, impact he had on Peggy, therefore British, um, American and mid-century art in general. Like, he had a huge impact. And he was obviously the man behind and alongside a lot of people of the time as well. Well, maybe he can be Peggy's date. He can come for some. He can come for dessert. I okay. think we want Peggy to ourselves to find out all the yeah. juicy gossip yeah. because, I mean, she's That's got true. a lot. That's she true. She has got a lot. One person who's definitely not allowed to come is Max Ernst. Yeah. I'm not impressed yeah. by him. Um, no. But I do want to share. No, probably Jackson Pollock, too, was a, a bit of a retrobate, I think. Mm. Probably safer not to have him as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I trust him at on the fire escape. <laughs> <laughs> which is where we <laughs> like to go and smoke cigarettes. I don't know if this days. is if this is entirely factually accurate or not, but I was struck by this. Leonora Carrington, the artist uh, Ernst was in love with while he was with Peggy, 
um, and very openly in love with. Apparently during his second internment, because he was interned um, twice, which is very disturbing, during his second internment, she had gone mad, set free her pet eagle, sold their house for a bottle of brandy, and vanished into a Spanish mental asylum to which she'd been committed by her influential British family. Um, so that's that where so much that's more romantic was... than the reality of it. I'm right? sure. <laughs> I'm sure the selling of the house for a bottle of brandy is is something that I find particularly striking, and also that he was so impressed with her because apparently once she had slathered her feet in mustard. Monica, you'll appreciate this. Um, <laughs> once while out at a restaurant having dinner without mentioning it. And apparently, you know, the the artists that they surrounded themselves with, these surrealists, were not often impressed by women. Like women weren't considered, you know, surrealist enough. They were just kind of observers. But apparently this was a true surrealist act that impressed even that very tough crowd. (laughs) Well, maybe that should be my opener. Maybe I should just like slather my feet in some. I don't think shih tzus might get a shot. True. For little puppies, when they come and lick your feet, True, might get might a horrible surprise. It. Maybe I'll do catch up <laughs> to make a statement. Yeah, perfect. They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I could florals? do a for spring. Groundbreaking. We're going to have to bear in mind that we're going to be wearing some pretty fabulous outfits, so we need to be mm-hmm. careful. Dress us, our, please. Um, yeah, well, so Peggy's obviously a fashionista of the highest degree. We uh, need to be doing her justice. Now, I don't know if you guys have thought about what you might wear. Um, I have a few ideas. I mean, are we currently pregnant in this dream um, scenario, I Monica? think, Alex, maybe <laughs> this is like in a few months. I, let's let's go with, because I really, I feel like to get the creative juices flowing, it'd be quite nice to have a drink and... The cellophane is just an easier look to pull off when you are not with child. It could be extraordinary. I mean, it'd be very surreal. I mean, it would be very surreal to do it pregnant, actually. Rihanna would approve, definitely. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if no one one minds, I'll take the minimalist. I'll take the Mondrian-type, simple, paired back, and I'll wear one of my suits so that, you know... It's a blank canvas, so you guys can all sing from. Yeah. Um, maybe some fabulous earrings. Yeah. Something like her. Maybe she'll lend me her colder kind of sculpture earrings or something like that. That would be pretty fabulous. Well, maybe you could wear mismatched earrings as well. Apparently, she was never afraid of mismatching her earrings. And notably, that she once wore um, the tongi on one side and Alexander Calder to uh, ignite a debate about the limits of surrealism. <laughs> So, and people were like, oh, I love that. Her earrings. I often wear mismatched earrings because I can never, I always lose one earring and then I don't want to sacrifice the mate. So, Emma, own it. It's very (laughs) peggy. Now I'm going to do, now I'm going to say I'm just really trying to open people's minds about the difference between surrealism and modernism. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So, I really like that for as the kind of piece de resistance of, your look. Now, I also was very inspired by that Man Ray photograph of her young um, in the Poiré dress, um, which everyone should have a look at in Google if they can't mm, picture it. So um, with worn with the hairband. Well, it's not really a hairband; it's like a headpiece given to her by um, Stravinsky's girlfriend. Um, it was kind of impossible Vera? to recreate. Vera's yeah, back. apparently. This is what I, I read. It. I know. So it goes back. Yeah. Um, but there's also, if we can't find, you know, 
the original kind of vintage Poiré because it might be a bit hard to get our hands on. Um, in fact, I hope she hung on to it and, and her grandchildren inherited it. But anyhow, there's a sort of like Prada, Miu Miu, uh, Mucha Prada kind of like turban look that we could go for that kind of came out in this in and around the Miu Miu like 2017, 2018 collections, um, which definitely include sparkling headpieces that I'd like to try. And I'm sure Mrs. Prada and Peggy Guggenheim would be friends. Well, you know? I do feel I, they would, you There's know. parallels between them Truly. and, you know... There's a brilliant store in Venice, well, the best Prada store in the world is in Venice. Yes, so it is. I think it feels, it feels right, Monica. Okay, I'm glad you um, concur. Uh, and I concur about that Prada store in Venice, which I had the good fortune to visit last summer. And um, I think that I'm going to, you know, even if I don't end up being tempted to have a real cigarette, I might have a long cigarette holder just to go with this look because... Definitely. Yeah. Oh, it's so good, that one in that image. Now, obviously, it is. Now, obviously, wrapping ourselves in plastic is an option. We've discussed That's Emma. It. That's, That's Emma. Emma. Emma's already bagsied that look. Thanks, um, guys. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Peggy was obviously, well, with your hair, it's going to be extraordinary. Do you know what? And it, it's perfect because if there are leftovers after the caterers leave, I can just use my outfit to wrap them. <laughs> oh, my God. And nip home naked on a gondola with a gondola. Um, obviously, background, Peggy was a close friend of Elsa Schiaparelli. Um, enjoyed wrapping herself in one of her cellophane dresses. Um, and Peggy did become an ideal model for Elsa's uh, surreal creations. Like they were really, it was a symbiotic relationship um, between designer and uh, and one of her key muses, I think. So we definitely need to get ourselves at least a bit of vintage Schiaparelli. There is an amazing um, exhibition this summer in Paris um, at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs. I don't know if you guys saw it it was like um um the output of that designer was pretty extraordinary so a meeting of minds there she had the guts didn't she she didn't care she didn't give a shit and that was what would made her have such the right edge and attitude for the clothes yeah yeah you know yeah. you couldn't wear them worrying about it you know her insecurity didn't show when it came to that if it was to build up other people or to exhibit arts, works of art, she didn't care if it was on her wall in her home or she'd wear it happily. You know, there was no insecurity when it came to that, which um, made her an amazing woman, really. It was about building other people up, about helping other people, right. yeah. you know, yeah. establish themselves. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, she's very selfless in a way. I mean, it, one does feel quite fabulous in these looks, I would imagine. Um, oh, and, and, and actually that reminds me, we can't forget... Um, the butterfly sunglasses, which she was known, oh, yeah. known for wearing. I have some of them. I do actually you? have some of them. I do, yeah. I'll wear them, shall I, in her honor? Please, please. Um, or I'll have them in my top pocket of my... I'll wear a white suit, I think, and I'll have them just tucked in. Oh, excellent. Well, I can't... Tucked in the top pocket. Wait, I wait, can't wait to see um, how fabulous we're all going to be looking. And... Um, and I feel, I feel like we're just about ready. Do you guys feel ready? Do you think there's anything else we need to plan? I think, I think we're pretty much good to go. We'll have tiramisu as a pick-me-up for dessert. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good idea. Of course. We just learned from Joel, our producer, that tiramisu means pick-me-up, which is brilliant. And I think we'll need one of those. It's going to be a long evening. So maybe around midnight, a little tiramisu won't go amiss. A little bit of caffeine to get the last 
dregs of goss out of her. Yeah, truly. Exactly. Right. I feel, I, I think I hear, uh, I actually think I hear Peggy's um, gondola rolling up. Should we, oh should we get into action stations? Do let's. Thank you very much, <laughs> Alex. This was enlightening. Yes. <laughs> Guys, thank you. It was wonderful to speak to you all. And sounds like you love her as much as I do. Well, we've is, been completely um, converted. A treat. Let's all carry on talking about her. I mean, she is in, it's, you know, I think you just, the, it's just, yeah, it's a, you can spend so much time indulging and in reading about her and learning about her and seeing her collection. She's an amazing woman. Yeah, she is. And there have been some very interesting documentaries made about her. Um, we will link to those in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. Yeah, send them to me too, please. Yes, will do. <laughs> <laughs> That wraps up in Scaparelli uh, cling film our season of Fanfare, season two. And actually, it's quite fitting, isn't it, that somebody who brought together so many sources of inspiration and was a source of inspiration herself should help us wrap up our audio mood board, season two. I very much agree. If you have ideas for who you'd like to hear in season three, please send us an email at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. In the meantime, you can catch up on all the other guests if you haven't heard them yet um, from this season and season one. They're all on there on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They are indeed. Make sure to subscribe so that you do not miss the beginning of season three, which will be coming fairly soon. Fun fact, we've already started booking guests, so we already know who's going to be on there, and it's going to be pretty cool. But and, get your, and get your requests uh, in if you want. If you want Get to. your requests in. Send us your thoughts. Absolutely. And rate and review if you have a moment. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our producers, Joel Grove and Matt Bentley-Viney. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. See you soon.